Hello and welcome to Unparliamentary Language, a podcast that hopes our comeback is better than Liz Truss's. And how are you, Rob? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Very good. Just come back off a little break, as I said. And yeah, all, all up for this podcast. I feel like there's been a little bit happening in the past month. Yeah, no, I mean, definitely stuff going on. I don't think we're going to talk about everything that I would want to talk about in this episode, but we've got some important stuff to <laughs> talk about in the headlines, which we'll get onto in a second. As Rob alluded to just there, don't forget, if you check us out on Patreon, we do a little bonus episode where you can hear us just chatting about life and other stuff that interests us. Uh, Rob has just been on holiday. I'm off on holiday soon. What such joys that you could listen to uh, if you throw a dollar a month our way. Um, or, or more. You can always throw more our way. Uh, always good. Um, but yeah, I guess we should head on into the headlines. Uh, so, I mean, breaking news as suddenly... This is probably the first time in a while where I feel the breaking news has been warranted uh, on the on the BBC because like we when the Queen passed away we'd kind of all worked it out by the time it happened but I do agree that it was breaking news right that was an important thing and there's been a few other things you know Liz Truss which we touched on but really breaking news gets used an awful lot for stuff that isn't at all breaking today breaking news alert on the phone Nicola Sturgeon is resigning and I think that kind of came out of the blue to a lot of people so uh do you want to talk a bit about that Rob yeah very briefly I mean oh on a phrase this by saying I'm no expert on Scottish politics, but I think it was a surprise to everybody that Nicola Sturgeon, one of the most successful uh, SNP leaders of our time, came into power in 2014, led the charge for a referendum, and on the back of that lost referendum, actually that sort of strengthened the SNP's hold on the rest of Scotland, and they've been incredibly successful in taking control in Scottish Parliament, which uses a voting system that pretty much should guarantee some form of coalition. And under her leadership, it, it hasn't. The SNP have been the majority party. They are that popular in Scotland. And although she's been seen as quite a divisive figure, clearly if you are you know, pro-Scottish independence, you're going to be for it. And if you're against, you're going to be very much against her and everything she stands for. Uh, I think it was quite a shock to the outsider that she decided at this point to stand down. Um, because, well, if you compare it, to, I was making the comparisons in my head as I was watching her resignation speech to a lot of, you know, other resignation speeches that we've seen earlier. If you think of Boris Johnson, for example, um, he resigned only when the writing was well and truly on the wall and nobody would be in a cabinet anymore. He was forced to resign, but he hang on by his fingernails before he finally went. Uh, Liz Truss, again, another person who was forced to resign basically because her party kicked her out. There were very few signs that, you know, even if Nicola Sturgeon was reaching a stage where her party was starting to lose trust with her, it hadn't become critical yet. So I think this was her chance to sort of take the narrative on this, like take the lead and say, no, I'm going to leave on on my terms and do it my way. Uh, and I don't know if you got a chance to listen to any of her speech, but I thought it was, it was quite impressive what she had to say. Yeah, no, I, I, I watched the speech in full. I think there was a slight delay. I did that thing where you accidentally hit pause on the uh, uh, BBC iPlayer app um, because uh, I kind of had it on in the background while I was running some some tests at work. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think it was very well handled and she stayed around for questions at the end. And I think a lot of, uh, as you say, I'm also not an expert on Scottish politics, but I've been in a few conversations today with some Scottish people who have uh, done a good job, I think, of A, putting up with all the English people in the chat, uh, comparing it too much to Westminster, and also just kind of explaining, you know, a few things. But uh, yeah, I, I think in summary, 
was a really good speech. Uh, quite a few of us uh, posted a link to the the Hamilton song. We'll show them uh, how how to let let go, um, which is all about uh, when George Washington, you know, after two terms, went, okay, that's it. I'm going to write a letter and be like, I'm quitting, and here's why. Also, references to Jacinda Ardern, who recently stepped down in New Zealand. And I think it's nice to be reminded that you can have a leader in the UK who can just be like, my time's up uh, for whatever reason. And it's, you know, people have been like, oh, you know, there's stuff on the horizon for it. But, you know, she was still doing well in the polls. She was still generally well liked and, you know, saying, as she said in her speech, essentially, look, I'm 53 and I want to have some time to myself. Like you can't, you don't have that time to yourself when you are uh, in charge of a country. You're so busy doing stuff. And she's had, she took the country through, um, uh, through everything with COVID, where I think we generally were quite, you know, we talked about it a bit, the differences between the various countries in the UK at the time. And Scotland generally seemed to handle it a lot better, um, I would say, overall. And I think, you know, when you've come through something stressful like that, uh, it's, it's, you know, get your party into a position where you feel you can hand over to someone else. And I think um, it's a little way away from their next, like they've fairly recently had an election, right? So it's a good time to pass on so that whoever takes over has the chance to get the momentum behind them when they next have an election. Um, and they're also two years out from a, a UK general election uh, because obviously that's the confusing thing. You have people who go to Westminster and also you have MSPs who go to Holyrood. So it's uh, like a confusing dub. There's two systems going on doing two different things. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think generally uh, it, it just shows that there's a different type of politics in Scotland and you can't really compare it to Westminster at all because it does it does just seem much more late laid back's the wrong term but it's uh there's a lot less of this kind of horrible backstabbing and stuff it seems like they're just going to have a nice sensible um uh process to elect a, a replacement uh for her and then she will step down and you know ah oh, kind of makes you miss the time when leaders did that have they ever done that in england <laughs> i'm not really sure we've ever had that luxury not for a long time if you think of the uh, like the transfer of power from blair to brown that's the only thing and, and it, like you said earlier if, if you're talking to scottish people it is wrong of us to compare it to the westminster model but the only one that came to mind in my time was blair could see the writing was on the wall that he was slowly losing popularity so had to hand it over to the man who and, and it was always unlike nicola sturgeon when she resigned um, nobody quite knows who the next leader is going to be. When Blair resigned, everybody sort of pointed at Gordon Brown and said, well, he's the only man for the job. That was somebody who just fairly recently won an election, was halfway through his term and said, I know I'm not going to make it to the end of this one. It's time for me to step aside. And he did it on his terms because I think everybody else has sort of been, all the other you know, conservative leaders that have had to leave us, um, Cameron was forced out because he lost his main policy on Brexit. Um, May couldn't keep control of the Parliamentary Party. Boris couldn't keep control of the Parliamentary Party. And Liz Truss couldn't keep control of the Parliamentary Party. So maybe in the SNP there are these huge factions and divides that I don't know about, but it doesn't appear that way from from the outside. And I think to the layperson, you can see those fractions in the Conservative Party. Um, There was very one interesting thing that she pointed on that I'd just like to raise she was talking how there are issues about wider politics and saying this has leaked into stuff that's happened in both Westminster and across the world where you you have these issues that you want debated, but because she's the person in charge and she's been in charge for nearly 10 years now, the SNP, everything is framed through, well, Nicola Sturgeon likes wants this policy, therefore 
if you're anti-Nicola Sturgeon and maybe anti-independence, then you must be against it. And although she didn't say that it was about short-term factors, one policy that has been catching the headlines around the country at the moment is the self-recognition bill in Scotland, where they can say that people can self-identify as the gender that they want to. And I think Nicola Sturgeon is right in kind of framing it as just because I believe in self-recognition for gender doesn't mean that like you have to doesn't mean that you have to have your view on Scottish independence and me affect your view of that. Do you get what I mean? Like those two issues are entirely like morally separate and divided and you shouldn't have to put it through the lens of what one person thinks about both of them. But we have as a society become quite obsessed with personality driven politics and saying hey that's you know hey i really like boris johnson therefore i'll like everything that boris johnson says it's kind of silly in a way you don't have to share all the same morals as boris johnson and nicola sturgeon is saying that your view on scottish independence shouldn't actually affect your view on self-gender recognition but she felt she was being dragged into the debate and the debate was being run on those lines so it was a good idea for her to step aside or maybe that we don't get so obsessed with leaders so we can have a more fruitful type of debate in the future and that that's something i i largely agree with i think the quality of debate in this country would be better if we focus on sort of issues as they stand independently rather than thinking of um, them through the lens of a leader but yeah, if that will actually come to fruition, that's quite an. Op- she herself said it was quite an optimistic worldview, and I'm not quite sure it will happen. But um, yeah, it's a nice thought at least, and it really made me think about how politics could be improved. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. Like, <laughs> there is this kind of oh well, this person likes this, or I think this person would like this, and like you don't have to tie everything into it. I mean, we've kind of touched on it. I think we've mentioned before with this uh, with the gender recognition certificates that uh, it's gone to uh, Westminster and Westminster has essentially gone, no, we're blocking it under this thing, which doesn't really make sense because they're kind of like, they can frame it as kind of like a we're stopping, that there's this whole like, we the government think, me speaking as the government here, (laughs) this is weird. Sorry, let me carry (laughs) on. That's all right. Um, It's like, so the government have essentially gone and said, the government thinks because of something to do with the Equality Act, you can't do this. It's not one of your devolved powers, even though, you know, and then that's gone off to the, the Supreme Court and obviously it got knocked down because of course it did when it went to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court's English. Um, that's not surprising at all. But like then, as you say, everyone's saying, oh, well, you know, this is something to do with independence. It's like they're completely different issues and we shouldn't be like framing this around an independence thing. And they've pulled in all this, you know, the, the, I think the Conservatives have gone and pulled in a whole unnecessary amount of baggage into like they essentially wanted to stop this this legislation in line with Tory values, which I don't agree with, but it's not surprising that they tried to stop it. Um, but then they've kind of gone, oh, it's something to do with independence. But no, you're supposed to like the Conservatives are always saying they're they're in charge. They're they're in charge. They're, I mean, they're, <laughs> the Conservatives are always saying they want to um, they want to you know look after the union, and then they like in order to get some petty culture war points, are blocking a thing. And I know there's more to it than that. And we're not, I don't think we're going in depth on any of that today, but like, there's a lot going on there around that. And it's like, these things should be separate issues, uh, you know, as you say. Um, one other thing I just want to touch on while we're talking about uh, Nicholas Surgeon is there's a poll that went out last week. Uh, I've put the tweet of um, who should succeed Nicholas Sturgeon, a poll of uh, the Scottish public. And, Obviously, this was before she said she was going to step down. So 69% said don't know, which, you know, I guess is not surprising. As as you say, like, she's been there for a long time. People probably thought she was going to continue to be there for a long time. 
so hadn't yet made their mind up. But it is kind of telling that there's there's a group of seven names uh, in this list, of which I've heard of a few um, for various reasons, but I haven't heard of all of them. I'm sure there will be more recognisable to Scottish listeners. But the percentages between, there's not much, there's one guy on 1%, but you know, most of them, we're talking like, it's between 2 and 7% of these people. Um, and it's because you know, when she's been there that long, there isn't, it, you know, because she hasn't had some massive, sc- I mean, there there have been scandals and, and stuff. There's a, an investigation into how the SNP have spent money and all sorts going on. But there's not been like, it's not like been with Boris or other people where we've been like, oh, well, they're definitely good. They've got to fall over tomorrow, right? Like, and it may have taken longer than we expected with Boris to get out, but we already kind of knew who the contenders were because we expected him to go soon. And this is kind of the polar opposite where there are, there are a number of people who probably could come forwards and I'm sure there are some others who aren't on that list who've been polled for who could who will probably throw their hat in the ring at some point um but we just yeah the, the, no one really has a f- strong feeling about it because we didn't expect her to step down so yeah uh interesting uh, and I guess uh after we predicted last time that there won't be much for us to talk about in Scotland this year we've been immediately proven wrong so that's great um uh yeah it'll be interesting to see what happens um so moving on uh next headline um yeah so uh labor and the european court of human rights uh this is the there was this anti-semitism row uh that kind of came up under corbyn and then there's been an investigation and labor said they'd have to do better and there's been uh, i think there was a report as well you know the usual kind of stuff that kind of kicks this story down uh, the road for three or four years uh, from when it actually happened. Um, and I guess uh, what has been the fallout from that? And will Corbyn run at the next general election, do we think? Yeah, so this is the story that sort of Labour are officially drawing a line under that anti-Semitism row. And one of the things that's come out of it, quite interestingly, is that Starmer has officially said that Jeremy Corbyn won't be running for Labour at the next election. Uh Jeremy Corbyn has been questioned if he will stand as an independent and is yet to comment. I think it sort of shows it's important to see where the parties are at at this stage. If you think where Jeremy Corbyn was about sort of five years ago, that 2017 election, he was riding on the crest of a wave. Like he'd suddenly got power in the Labour Party through a huge grassroots movement. Um, He had momentum and he had a group behind him called momentum that were driving the policy of the labor party and for a while particularly after that election not victory but he was able to stop theresa may getting a majority in that 2017 election it seemed that his politics would be the one that would dominate the party for years now he finds himself not even a part of it and the fact that keir starmer feels confident enough to do that kind of shows that in my opinion, Labour are really sort of battening down the hatches, saying, yes, we are a united party. If you're not part of, you know, if you don't believe what I believe, get out the party. We don't want you. We believe that we can win the next election without you, um, which probably is in in stark contrast to the fractions and divisions that we're seeing in the Conservative Party now, where they're having to make sort of um, concessions to each corner of the party just to keep some sort of election coalition together so they can stumble forward into 2014. Um, yeah, I think it's it, it's a, it's an important moment and shows really how far the party has come, how it has taken itself away from Corbynism. And I don't think Keir Starmer could have done that without the results of the 2019 election. Like, nobody heard of Jeremy Corbyn before in 2017. 
his manifesto was more popular than everybody thought. Um, so what Boris Johnson did in 2019 is he sort of cherry-picked a couple of things off Jeremy Corbyn's um, wish list. Essentially, uh, Theresa May said, we're doing austerity again. We're giving you nothing. And Jeremy Corbyn was like, no, we're going to spend. We're going to give you things. Uh, Boris Johnson kind of stole his cake at the 2019 election and said, no, we'll give you stuff as well. And Corbynism kind of collapsed. And that's how you got the big 70-seat majority for Boris Johnson. so yeah, only on the back of that, I think, can Keir Starmer feel confident enough to sort of kick Corbynism to one side and say, no, we don't need you. No, I'm ahead by 10 points in the polls. You are, quite crucially for Keir Starmer, the Corbyn wing of the party is very small. It was a fact that he struggled to get the MP nominations back when he was running for Labour leader, and he actually had to borrow some from some people who just thought, oh, we'll, we'll lend him a couple of votes just to make sure he gets across the line. So we have a bit of debate with the left wing. We defeat them and moved on. That turned to be a big mistake for the MPs within the Labour Party because they were all of a sudden stuck with a leader that they didn't necessarily agree with all of his principles. Um, yeah, they're in a position where they can just move him to one side and say, no, if you're not going to agree with the outcome of this anti-Semitism row, you're out of the Labour Party we're moving on from this, and it makes a, a clear distinction between the two. Um, one thing that Rishi Sunak constantly brings up in in PMQs, and you hear it over and over again, bizarrely, it's Keir Starmer supported Jeremy Corbyn, that's why you shouldn't vote for Labour. They see it as, clearly, they want to evoke the memory of Jeremy Corbyn in people's minds to remind them why you shouldn't vote Labour. Keir Starmer is trying to put the biggest difference between the two possible and the biggest difference is chuck him out of the party altogether and not let him back in. It's hard to be seen as a Jeremy Corbyn lover if you're not even letting him in your party. So, yeah, important development there, worth mentioning. And, yeah, just sort of we, as we're going through the headlines and we're kind of touching on each party, I think it is important just to check in with Labour once in a while. I, I realise I spend a lot of my time moaning about the Conservatives this podcast so why not put a bit of spotlight on labor as well yeah no i mean i I understand why we're doing that um i i think as you say it's very interesting because we thought we were kind of getting into a a very left versus very right uh kind of uh, like echoing american politics like you know people have called boris johnson britain trump you know all of these things are not necessarily good comparisons um that you know that they're used to try and simplify concepts that or, or realities that are much more complex a bit like we were saying during the uh discussion on scotland where people from outside often simplify things into the model they understand um but it is interesting that yeah in what less than five years we've kind of gone from like well you know corbyn's gonna have his go and he'll probably win on this quite left-wing radical radical for the uk at least agenda um and suddenly like it seems like that's all kind of deflated like you know there, there are still those people uh momentum still exists but they don't have the reins of the party anymore. Um, and I think, well, it's like when Labour came in with the landslide, right, uh, under Blair, they adopted a more central position. They were obviously more left than the Conservatives, but they were kind of just left of centre, really. And then they said, oh, we're not the Tories, the Tories are the party of sleaze. And it seems like we're very much setting ourselves up at the moment now for a repeat of 97 in well, what when will the next one be? 2024. So, yeah, it very much seems like similar lines are being drawn. Um, I'm not sure Keir has the uh, kind of, you know, the je ne sais quoi kind of factor that 
Blair had, you know, when Blair was new and up and coming and interesting and a change to the party. But it does seem like, once again, history is repeating itself about 20 years or 25 years on. So, yeah, I don't have much else to add. It just, yeah, uh, draw parallels with uh, 97. And uh, yeah, I guess Labour will be, you know, it, we're at that position where anything is better than what the Conservative Party are doing for the country. Um, and so people will vote for Labour regardless because we're essentially in a two-party system. Um, so I guess, yeah, can they keep that lead into a general election as we've discussed at length in our uh, predictions episode? Um, so moving on, our next headline. Uh, what's that up in the sky? Something floating over the mid- Midwest of America. Um, what story am I alluding to, Rob, uh, with this? Yeah, it is the Chinese spy balloon scandal that sort of it started off small and I feel like it suddenly escalated out of nowhere. So essentially what was happening was President Biden was due to host the Chinese premier over in America. And just before those events, a balloon was spotted flying very low over parts of America. And eventually it was shot down. The premise is that this is some sort of Chinese surveillance and that they are using weather balloons as a way of disguising their surveillance. Essentially, there are loads more weather balloons than I thought that are up in the sky. And mostly, they're they're very hard. If you wanted to sneak your own spy satellite, or sorry, your spy balloon in there with them, it's relatively easy because not many people sort of monitor the movements. There are so many that it's, it's not like jets where there's some sort of you can go online, you can monitor every jet or every plane in the world and where it's going. You simply don't track them in the same way. And after this first one was shot down, I think we've had like five or six others. Um, and it led to a, a a conference with Joe Biden saying that, you know, we're, we're not quite sure how some of these are staying up in the air and we would classify them as unidentified flying objects or UFOs, which got people on a whole, oh my God, it's aliens tangent, which I think is... It's unfair. Just because they're unidentified flying objects doesn't immediately mean that they are extraterrestrial in nature, just that we don't quite understand what they are or or how they float. It might be some sort of new technology that's going on. Um, But it has it essentially where you've got a, a place where tensions between the US and China are already quite high. There are questions over the the support that America gives Japan and control over the South China Sea, the retentions over Hong Kong, and, you know, is democracy being repressed in there? This just sort of adds to it. And what some people thought might be a Chinese power play, having a balloon deliberately in plain sight saying, hey, we're we're watching you, and might have been a bit of saber-rattling to America. America seemed to have taken on the challenge and said, yeah, we'll just, if we see these balloons and think you're your, they're yours, we'll shoot them down. So. Yeah, it's not exactly, <laughs> it's nothing too serious quite yet, but it's quite uh, a weird and uh, a weird diplomatic scandal that will certainly stick in the memory to see how this will affect diplomatic relations going forward between the two nations. Yeah, um, I, I don't have much to add. It's uh, an interesting story, but like you say, I think there was a full-on bit where people were just like going, aliens, uh, you can imagine me doing the hands from the meme right now. Um, as you say, the key word there is unidentified. Uh, I mean, <laughs> it means we don't know what it is. That could be anything. I know that uh, there was a period where everyone thought that was aliens and stuff. But uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> nearly all uh, UFO sightings have been basically ruled down to being like either a weird trick of the light or some kind of spy plane that hadn't been announced. So yeah, it is 
Interesting. I think one thing that you maybe didn't mention is that this first one was kind of powered, right? It's um, there's different types of balloon, and the the first one was definitely something where, while they may not have full control over where it goes, it had its own power system, so it could like kind of move around a bit. Um, and then the the other ones that have been shot down, as far as we know, are kind of like more like your traditional balloons, and maybe just in the wrong place. Like I think I think I'm right in saying that every day, uh, you know, the Met Office sends up a weather balloon like literally every day. And that's how we get some of our really useful weather data, you know, stuff like, um, you know, are we going to get this much pollen, that kind of stuff. I I don't know specifically what the sensors are, but I, I think I was surprised to find out fairly recently that there's literally a weather balloon going up every day. They go up high enough and then they kind of pop and they fall down somewhere. And parts of it, I think, can be, you know, reclaimed and reused, um, but they normally need a new balloon. Um, so, yeah, it's it. there are a lot of these about. And I guess... If you're on edge and you have a load of fighter jets, you might just make sure you shoot down one. Like, because they're probably not, you know, your own balloons if they're flying into airspace from somewhere else. But also the chances that all of these balloons that have been shot down in the last how many days are all going to be spy balloons, I think is unlikely uh, based on what people are saying. People are saying, you know, it's quite common for their balloons to go off course and people to lose track of them. So probably less of a big deal. But yeah, it did seem like everyone was suddenly like very head up about it. And of course, in the news, you know, people are like, oh, another one's been shot. Another, And it's like, it's more that people weren't bothering before uh, than it is, you know, World War Three, which is, of course, how I'm sure someone on uh, a right-wing UK, uh, right-wing US uh, television network has painted it. Um, but yeah, I guess that's kind of our fun story from the US this week, in a way. Um, I guess uh, that's all our headlines. Uh, so on into our main story tonight. So we have a new prime minister, as we've discussed, Rishi Sunak. Uh, he's been there for just over a hundred days now. So, how do we think he's done? Well, I mean, I guess first up, what did what did he say he'd achieved? You know, it's quite generally quite a big uh, thing. We do this with the presidents. What have they achieved in the first hundred days? All that kind of stuff. People focus on it a bit. Um, and famously, Liz Truss didn't get to a hundred days. So, uh, this is our first kind of chance since the whole switch over from Johnson to actually look at what someone has managed to achieve. So, what did he say he was going to do, and what's he done? Yeah, so I think in the case of Rishi Sunak, it's we've had it a fair bit since uh, the Conservatives have come to power where we've had a leader come in and there hasn't been a general election when they've come in. So they have to sort of set out their manifesto, but they haven't been elected on these pledges. Um, and in Rishi Sunak's case, I mean, you remember he's the man who lost a Conservative internal election against Liz Truss, a quite protracted one over last summer. So he did lay out some of his policies then. Those policies have changed or adjusted since he's become prime minister. And of course, he didn't even have to face a leadership contest within the Conservative Party because nobody else met the required threshold or chose to stand, if you believe what Boris Johnson says about how many nominations he could have got. So he has laid out his five key principles or his five priorities of what he wants to do. He wants to halve inflation, reduce government debt, grow the economy, cut waiting lists, and stop small boats. Um, yeah, quite quite the targets. I think. Quite the list. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I guess do we want to go through each of those in order, as we usually do. Uh, halving inflation. Um, I mean, I think we've already touched on the fact, uh, before, before we get into this, I'm just going to mention again that uh, halving inflation, you know, still means prices are going up because you're halving the rate of inflation. It's not the same thing as halving prices. So I feel like I have to mention that every single time we talk about this story um, because math's hard. Um, but yeah, 
So uh, how is inflation doing? I, I know that things still feel like they've got more expensive. I definitely have had my first uh, electricity and gas bill since moving. And yeah, uh, that was expensive. So uh, where are we? So uh, official statistics say that it is falling, but falling slowly. So it's down from a figure of about 10.5% that was in December to about 10.1%. But as you can see, that is a long way from being halved. And if you're saying that you're feeling the pinch, um, there were some news stories that broke today that McDonald's has had to put up the price of some things on its menu, which is for a multinational corporation that kind of prides itself on having the one pound menu or like reliably, our Big Mac is always five pounds. That's our staple. That's why people come here. Um, for them to put their prices up a bit, clearly shows that inflation is having an effect all over the world, but particularly in the UK. Um, so yes, this is, it's a lofty goal. Most people think that if the war in Ukraine dies down or that markets slowly adjust to what has happened in Ukraine and find alternative ways to get energy, gas, grain, things that were coming out of Ukraine as well, um, the inflation will naturally go down. So this target he set himself might be something that happens independently of um, the government's economic policy. Uh, but currently, I mean, it, it would have been very tough for him to halve inflation within 100 days, and at the moment it is going down slowly. Is that a target he can reach by 20, the 2024 election? At the moment, I doubt it. It seems like he's got a very uphill struggle. And I think we touched on this last time we spoke about this as well, but like you just said, it's not something that is really within his... There are some levers he can pull on as Prime Minister and the Chancellor can do some on his behalf, but like it, it's like judging presidents by how well they did economically. People tend to vote for, you know, if if in the US, if if a president has been in charge when the economy has been doing well, they tend to get voted in again. And then if they do, if the economy does poorly, they tend to vote in the alternative candidate. But also it's nothing to do with the president. Like um, so it's similar to, uh, for our American listeners, kind of similar to over there, you have the, the Federal Reserve changing interest rates. We have the Bank of England that does the interest rate. So and they will react based on factors that the government does not control. The government can try and talk to them and say, look, if we do this, this and this, will that help? And then try and change things a bit. But it's not the same as like halving it or doing anything radical. There are, there are too many external factors, and we've touched on this before, um, that, you know, after Brexit, COVID and other things, well, after Brexit specifically, we have, by not being part of Europe, we're now much more susceptible to a hard knock economically. Um and that's why we've had so many problems recently, worse than everyone else in the G. Was it, was it the G seven results that came out recently? Uh, yes, yeah, we, yeah. We are I think, the, or was it G twenty? We're we're the slowest recovering, worst performing economy in the G twenty. I think it was. Um, if it wasn't the G twenty, it was the G seven. It was the G seven that because in. that's in point number okay, three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, okay. We haven't got there yet. Cool. Well. Uh, <laughs> There you go. Corrected already. But yes, uh, we were the slowest growing economy in the G7, which, uh, you know, and people were pointing to there's one thing we've done that the others haven't, which is Brexit. So yeah, um, not much more to add other than, yeah, it doesn't seem particularly achievable, as I think we've said several times before and have just repeated. So number two, uh, reducing government debt. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, the main solution we know to this is tax people more, uh, not necessarily a winning strategy in a cost of living crisis, is it? 
No, and it's not necessarily a winning strategy amongst his own party as well. If you remember, there were many reasons why some people rebelled against Boris. Some of them rebelling against Boris because they felt he was being too subservient to Rishi Sunak's economic policy when he was Chancellor, saying we have to tax our way out. Now, the government does have have a lot of debt because of the money it had to spend through COVID, through furlough schemes, etc. I think every major economy in the world took a hit to their public purse to get through COVID and lockdowns and, and what that meant for the impact on their various economies. Um, even if they didn't lock down, they still had an impact on economies. So you can't quite pin it all on that. But yeah, the government now seems wants to recover. They want to get some of that money back. One of the main ways you do that is through tax. And that's certainly what his current chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, has stepped up and said, that's what we're going to have to do. And already we've seen that the Conservatives have raised taxes to their highest level since post-war to try and get some of that money back. So, yeah, that is, I think, taken on its own, that statement, reduce government debt, sounds entirely sensible. I mean, of course it does. I don't think any <laughs> I don't think any sane leader would come out and say, my policy is to increase government debt. That sounds terrible. Um, but the way he has to do that, I think, will be unpopular amongst his own party and, as you said, in the cost of living crisis, potentially quite unpopular with the general populace as well. So, yeah, he might be uh, setting himself up for a fail or maybe hiding the economic levers he has to pull to try and reduce government debt within that. I'm not going to have much to say on any of these, I don't think. I'm just going to be asking the questions today. <laughs> no, that's okay. I don't think there's much more I can draw on, really, other than to mention, you know, might throw in an aside here and there. But really, yeah, I think there's a lot of this that's going to be kind of tricky. So on a similar theme, number three, growing the economy. Uh, so uh, we've already touched on the G7 results, but I, so I guess I've kind of uh, spoiled, spoiled that for you there. But um, yeah, what's, uh, what's going on with growing the economy? Is it, has he achieved anything in that? I mean, in 100 days, it feels like quite a hard thing to do. But um do we know where his yes. might lie? And, and I think these are things that he wants to sort of like make sure his targets, not only over 100 days, but at least set the scene to say how we're going to grow the economy. Um, once again, I pick up on the point that if anybody led on the phrase, I want to reduce the economy, that would be mad. So I kind of think this statement is a little redundant. It's not controversial either way. Um, but anyway, as we know, his predecessor, Liz Truss went on, went big on this message of we've got to go for growth. Our economy is stagnant. Stagnant. This is how we do it. And her policy was the exact opposite of Rishi Sunak's, which was let's reduce tax and hope that businesses come here, and we increase, uh, you know, we increase productivity, we increase the amount that they make, and therefore that we make more money, even if we reduce tax on them, because we are encouraging growth. Um, Rishi Sunak hasn't quite laid out how he wants to grow the economy in the same way. And as you pointed out, the fact that we are pretty stagnant at the moment and the only country in the G7 not to recover its output since COVID. So during COVID lockdowns and you know the effects of that, production was reduced as there was less demand for things because people were in their houses, etc., not going anywhere. Now things are going back to normal. All other countries in the G7 have started to see that production go up we are failing to recover. There are many factors on that. I think I saw one of them the other day, which was like, during COVID, a lot of people in their 50s or 60s who could have worked up to retirement age were made redundant because of COVID. They've worked in the tourism industry or, or, or something that was affected by it. They said, oh, I've got enough money in the bank, actually, that I don't have to work again. You know what? 
I think I'm done. And those people have failed to return to the workforce, which means you can't get the bodies in to do the jobs you need. If there's one problem that our economy doesn't have at the moment, it is actually employment. Conservatives rail on about employment and say that we've got some of the highest employment rates in the world. Fantastic. Um, But it's not enough. We need more people employed to get our production up. And there are ways you can do that. One is having more old people in your workforce. One is migration, allowing people to easily migrate from, I don't know, countries across the sea, Europe maybe, make it easy for them to fill in gaps in the job market. Clearly, that's not as easy as it was. Um, And that is maybe one of the reasons that people are pointing towards our unique economic circumstances being affected by Brexit. And we're starting to see the long tail of that. Of course, there's As we always say, the caveat on that is it's very hard to specifically say that one thing is caused by Brexit and you can argue till the cows come home um, where exactly, you know, the reasons why um, the UK isn't performing. If you you looked at Liz Truss's reasons, she'd say it's because we're naturally lazy and we should be more productive as a country. That was one of the things that she said in her book. Uh, So, yeah, lots of reasons there essentially very hard to achieve in 100 days. And I think he hasn't quite got the same go for growth, hell for leather approach that Liz Truss had. And to be honest, I'm grateful for that, considering the impact that she had on the economy. But uh, yeah, there certainly seem to be no quick solutions to the economic uh, stagnation that's happening in the UK at the moment. Yeah. Um, Again, I'm essentially just going to be agreeing with you in all of these points, it would seem. Um, But yeah, I mean, I, I think just one point, and I know you said people will argue about it until the cows come home, but on those economic points, you know, the other G7 countries have also had COVID and other things. The The key dis, the key difference, I would think, is that we have broken up from a big group of nations we were previously a part of. Um, and I, I you know, I, I am not an economist. I have not picked through all the data, but I think... It is quite easy to start. Like we said, this would happen for a while. That there would be these various things muddying the water, and I think you know there were many things that was bad about COVID. Um, but we, I think, we said at the time, it one thing from a, from a purely academic point that was slightly frustrating was not being able to pick apart this data. Um, but then, if you you know this kind of comparison, other countries who've also had to deal with COVID, and I mean, we were probably less locked down than quite a few of the G seven, right? Um, you know, especially when you compare us to, say, Japan, who have only really started to open up recently, and they're still doing quite well. So, you know, we've we've already been open to tourism and all these other things that should have given us a boost, um, and still haven't managed to get things moving. So, yeah, I think it's uh, uh, I, I think that's probably what I would point to if I was having an argument about that with someone. Um, but yeah, uh, no, no more points from me. I don't think really. Uh, it's just yeah. I mean, Liz Truss certainly didn't help. Let's put it that way. <laughs> but I don't think Rishi can blame it all on her. Um, you know, may, there may have been a simple writing of the ship, but I think anyone uh, put in that position at the time could have pointed at what you needed to do to undo that spectacular flop uh, in the economy we had when Liz Truss was in power. Um, so, yeah, point four. The NHS uh, needs some investment. I mean, it's needed investment for a long time. Uh, I think the phrase generally for bandied around is chronically underfunded. Um, and... Obviously, we've just had COVID. Uh, you would think we'd want to give our nurses and doctors some more money after all of that. Um, but yes, wh- where are we with that? Yeah, so a- again, this is one where he has said he wants to do it. And I think everybody would agree that it would be nice to give the NHS investment and in particular sort of cut the COVID backlog that exists um, and reduce NHS waiting times. 
The problem is that when you look on the face of it, he's still having other problems with the NHS he has to deal with first. Most uh, acutely, that's the issue of the nurses' strikes that have been uh, continuing um, uh, you know, along the... Yeah, if it had been continuing, there was one in December, I think there was one early Feb, and the nurses essentially saying, we want Rishi Sunak to be involved in these talks. The government seems to be very reluctant to have any sort of pay talk with the nurses. So if you can't motivate or pay your workforce in that way, you are going to struggle to get them to cut NHS backlogs, in my opinion. And it's not a good look for him. You know, I love the NHS. On one hand, I want to reduce its waiting list times, but also... I'm kicking the nurses that helped the country through COVID that we, we clapped, but we're not willing to give more money to. So, yeah, bad look, bad vibes, something that, you know, certainly hasn't been sorted in his 100 days. And again, I fail to see how he will be able to solve it by 2024. Yeah, I mean, it's quite a short timeline. That's next year, everyone. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I guess if we do it on the five-year term, it would be a December election, right? Because our last one was December 2019. So technically more than 12 months but still a very short timeline to turn things around um you can't just win the lottery if you're a country you know and fix all your debts um or in the nhs uh so yeah i mean i i think as i said chronic underinvestment. uh we can point you towards all sorts of things um private eye is generally quite good uh they have a column in there um which is written by a doctor um and he talks a lot about the kind of issues going on with funding of the nhs and you know stuff being sold off to private like the slow move to stuff being privatized uh, and and stuff, which is, you know, as a lot of people say, look over to America, we don't want that. Um, maybe throw in the BDG video about uh, medical insurance in the US because he's currently uh, freelance uh, working for himself and had to go through all this stuff. And then at the start, he's like, look, this may not be very interesting to you, uh, people in the UK, but watch out because this is what's coming for you kind of thing, which was quite a good point um and i think yeah the nhs is big and expensive but compared to how much americans pay to go and have their healthcare sorted it's it's a drop in the water so i think we should try and uh, reinvest in the nhs and fix it but i don't think the tories are going to be the ones who do that for us unfortunately and i am slightly also worried about labor but that's not what we're talking about here today so um, i guess i'm just going to be here to opine my opinions a bit on each of these points <laughs> so Moving on into part five, uh, stopping small boats, which definitely doesn't fit with the others. And as I think we've already touched on, I mean, not that I'm saying everyone who's coming over as a refugee in a small boat is going to immediately start working and help the economy. But I very much feel like we've touched on the fact that immigration could be a good thing when you want to grow the economy. And so this one kind of seems a bit out of place amongst the other five. Yeah, I mean, he's focusing on the illegal channel crossings, as the Conservatives would call them, you know, they're saying that it is people trafficking, it is a danger, they want to stop the illegal practice of small boats going on. And it's been a it's been a right-wing talking point for a long time. I think it was brought to attention of most people, even during COVID in 2020, was Nigel Farage would go out on a boat off the coast of Kent and say, look, there are people still coming over, this is a crisis. And eventually it's got to the front pages, and it seems to be a big talking point, particularly among the right wing of his party. So I think this is a deliberate attempt from him to try and get support from the more sort of Borisy side of the party to say, hey, you might think I'm a wet centrist who wants to raise taxes, but I also want to kick those small boats as well. Remember, that's why you vote Conservative too. So um, 
I think out of all the five proposals he's got there, it's sort of the most achievable. He's put forward policies of like, okay, we'll work at the French at the Channel Mall to try and reduce it. Um, I know Suella Braverman says they'll, you know, have increased uh, Royal Navy patrols in the area. However, the actual evidence that this is reducing small boats crossing is pretty low at the moment. And I believe that it was in a recent uh, exchange with... The Shadow Home Secretary, whose name is escaping me at the moment, but she's good. Yvette Cooper. Yeah, with the Shadow Se- Secretary, Yvette Cooper, basically saying that, oh, under the Conservative leadership, small boat crossings has increased and you failed to do anything so far. So that's why he wants to get a handle on it. But there's sort of little proof that he's got anywhere with that and it would require more legislation, legislation that he is yet to pass. So clearly not achieved in those first hundred days. Um, and although he might be able to pass some legislation by the end of 2024, if it will be the vote winner that he thinks it is, able to get him across the line and make him more popular amongst the right of his party, personally, I don't think that is is enough. I think that wing of the party haven't forgiven him for, I'm doing air quotes now, you can't see me, stabbing Boris in the back, being one of the people who initialised that change, initialised the downfall of Boris and essentially made him not be able to form a cabinet. So, yeah, he's... a uh, batting on a very sticky wicket. So, again, I don't have much to add to that particular point. I guess if we have uh, all these things that he's been struggling to deal with, that he said he's going to deal with, um, like, you know, you'd expect him to be focusing on those. What is he ignoring? What What are the big problems? Like, I mean, <laughs> anyone living in the UK now, right now is probably screaming at their podcast app of choice because there's several big things we haven't touched on in dealing with these five points. So what what have we uh, not focused on? I guess, well, the obvious one is strikes are ongoing. Nothing seems to have been fixed with that since we last mentioned the strikes. So, uh, you know, where's that going? Have, have any of the strikes uh, been called off um, and actually cleared up or is it still uh, strike city? Well, not that I'm aware of. I know that there was a recent London bus strike that's been resolved but i think that was sort of dealt with internally rather than in the in the government um you've got ones like the nurses don't look like they're going to stop striking anytime soon and any chance of like pay being increased for them at the level they want seems very low there are now strikes in education like there was an entire teachers strike in early feb um that day in early feb we were almost getting to national strike limits where there you know the amount of services that were out on that day was incredible and a recent report says that we've had the most day of strikes since under Thatcher's rule so you know <laughs> they said Jeremy Corbyn was going to take us back to the 70s and 80s well maybe it's the Rishi who's been able to take us back there although these strikes were happening under Liz Truss as well and, and they were the, the the causes of these strikes were bubbling up even even then so yeah that's a big thing he hasn't been able to get a handle on all they've wanted to do really is try and pass legislation that says we'll stop people's ability to strike, which, hey, I guess that might reduce the strikes, but it doesn't solve any of the underlying problems that the country has and address the reason why people are striking. Uh, I guess he maybe is trying to address that, saying, I'll reduce inflation, therefore we won't need to pay you more because things will be affordable again. Uh, but I think for the moment, it's quite abstract and people want their money now so they can afford things now. They don't want to wait on a promise of maybe it'll get better in the future. Yeah, and I think what we may have touched on this when we mentioned the strikes before, but you know, quite a few of these strikes are overpay disputes that are due in, in retrospect. So that, you know, when this comes through, you know, it, it's for last year's pay 
And now, you know, so they, they need to get that sorted before they can even start discussing the next pay increase that's due and should be affected by all of this inflation stuff going on. So it's like that there's for some, for some uh, industries, at least that is a situation they're stuck in where they're like, this is just the strike we need to resolve so we can get onto the next set of strikes, which is not a situation you ever want to be in because you, you kind of want to be like, well, we can resolve this and it, it's over. But that's where um, quite a few of these problems are at the moment. And then, as you say, <laughs> it, there were a few days where it felt like we were just, you know, everything was on strike. But I think in general, people are behind them. I think it probably helps that there are more people working from home than there used to be. There are so many strikes going on that you need to resolve them. And quite a few of these are ones where the, the paymaster or the person who can control, like with the trains, those are private companies, but the person who has to get them around the table is the transport secretary. So these are things where the government can take a direct stance and 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 fix things and could if they wanted. And I think we touched on before that this is very Thatcher like, you know, holding the unions and, and trying to break the unions, but people are still striking. Like I, I think they will probably not give up before the government uh, would be my call on it right now. So I think uh, something that needs addressing and worrying to me that it's not in the top list of priorities, I think that would definitely go above small boats on my priority list if I was making one. Um, but yeah, so um, on to the next thing. Uh, well, we mentioned Liz Truss in our joke at the start of the episode. So I guess, um, has Liz Truss done anything recently that might be a bit of a problem? For <laughs> well, it, it, a problem kind of for him and maybe for the Conservative Party at large. But... Um, it's kind of an unwritten rule, I guess, that once you are a prime minister and you step aside, particularly for somebody within your own party, that you stay quiet for quite some time and let the other person rule and let them have their agenda. Um, it has only been, as I said, 100 days of Rishi Sunak. If you're wondering why we didn't do 100 days looking at Liz Truss, that's because she only made it to 49. Um, so she never had you know, time to implement one policy and it went belly up. Um, but she's felt the need sort of around, but just after Rishi Sunak's 100 days to come out with her own um, essay, which she published in the Daily Telegraph, which to summarise kind of said, um, yes, well, she didn't really apologise for what she got wrong, but she kind of said, look, my economic vision to go for growth was a true crusade and, and that's what we really need to do. I just got it a bit wrong, but I didn't get it wrong. It was because the left-wing economic establishment stopped me. And although she never uses those words in the essay, that's what the Telegraph used as their headline. What she was getting at there was she believed that there were forces within Whitehall, so civil servants, um, people within the Treasury Department. One of the first things she did on her first day was sack the former leader of the Treasury Department so she could get her own economic policy through. And even sort of like within the Bank of England, um, forces that are keeping the British economy to keep taxes high rather than leave them low. That's kind of what she was saying. So she said that my policy was doomed to fail because people were unwilling to go far enough with it because they are too cautious in their economic thinking. Um, which I think that when you go deeper into the article where she says, oh, I didn't know about this pensions crisis. I wish somebody had told me or I wouldn't have put my economic policy into, you know, into live, into the live system when I did, if I thought it would cause this crash. It just seems very naive. And if anything, she's sort of, she's causing divisions in the Conservative Party and she's reminding everybody that Liz Truss was a thing and was incompetent and was a Conservative who crashed the economy, which is not what Rishi Sunak wants at all. 
On top of that, you've also got the spectre of Boris Johnson, where, so whereas Liz Truss, it looks like there's zero chance of her ever becoming prime minister again, there are a group of people within parliament or within politics who feel that, hey, if they can unseat Rishi before the 2024 election, that's when Boris Johnson can sweep back in, get the bounce in the polls they need, and win in 2024 again, because Boris is the big election winner which, again, seems to me like madness. <laughs> there were reasons that he couldn't stand in the, you know, when he had that chance, when we thought he was going to be, it was going to be between him and Rishi Sunak for the leadership of the Conservative Party, and he'd have yet another internal election to decide that. He stepped to one side. It, it very clearly, to me, shows the internal divisions within the Conservative Party, that there is a Liz Truss wing, like a right-wing economic wing that exists. There is a populist wing that is the Boris Johnson party that wants him to lead the Conservatives. And there's the Rishi party in the middle that's a centre. And it's all sort of this odd coalition that isn't really functioning anymore and is chugging along, which means they can only really agree on some very basic Conservative principles. And that's it. Which is why I think these five principles that he's laid out are kind of so meh. There's nothing controversial. Like, Boris Johnson, Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak would agree that you have to grow the economy. Guess what? Everybody in the country would agree that, <laughs> right? It's not a controversial policy to put in your, in your manifesto. It's not interesting enough. You know, it's, that is why he is sort of hamstrung by what he can say, what he can achieve in these 100 days, just because the party simply isn't united enough. And these PMs speaking out when he's still prime minister certainly aren't helping one bit. Yeah, I mean... When, again, not a massive amount of a different opinion coming from me here, I'm afraid. But um, when I saw that Liz Truss was just like, like, oh, it's time for my comeback. And I'm like, I don't think you were really ever, like, you were technically in charge. But I don't think anyone ever thought that was a particularly good idea except for yourself. Um, and uh, so, yeah, preparing for a comeback. And it's like, it's a bit like um, kind of uh, the problem they have over in the US now where they're like, who's going to run to be the Republican candidate? And will Trump come in and ruin everything for everyone kind of? conversations that are going on is very much feeling like that where you have as you say various factions that can't agree and it's quite a big party so so those facts it's not like there's two people following boris johnson around you know his little you know telling him oh you're great uh, you know there are quite a few um people still who are like you know borisites you've got your rishiites and uh lizites i guess um and you know as we said rishi sunak didn't win uh, first uh, leadership election. So that means there's enough people supporting Liz Truss to get her through, um, even if it was kind of a like, let's try something a bit different, I guess, even though it's a bit like Boris, but with less economical understanding. But yeah, it's it's very weird at the moment for the Tory party. And I think that's another thing they'll struggle with going into a general election is trying to put forwards a coherent message when you have essentially three quite big personalities um, still fighting over the core of the party. Uh, speaking of uh, factions in the Conservative Party, uh, there's still a few kind of um, skeletons in the closet for Rishi Sunak um, as well. With uh, you know, we, we haven't really got over the sleaze, uh, which, as we've pointed out before, was kind of the problem uh, that was going on in the 90s uh, under John Major as well. Um, and yeah, we've still got uh, Zahawi, we've got uh, Dominic Raab. Um, what's going on with all of that? Yeah, so it, since in between our last podcast, we had like yet another Conservative Party scandal. Essentially, it was that the former Chancellor of the Exchequer, Nadim Zahawi, um, had 
not been paying all of his taxes as he should have um, or hadn't declared it. And that is clearly very embarrassing for a government. It's embarrassing for any MP. But when they are literally the Chancellor of the Exchequer, the person who is in charge of money, that looks really bad. Now, he was only Chancellor of the Exchequer for the months where Boris Johnson was leader, but we were having the Conservative election. But still, that's a very bad look. And the way that Zahawi clung on, and even when he was pushed out, the party didn't really apologise, kind of said, well, I did nothing wrong. It was, it was almost like a Trump defence of, well, I was, being, I was being smart for not paying my taxes. You know, I was just using the system that was available to me. Um, it's not a good look, particularly within like a cost of living crisis or a time where you're trying to raise taxes or convince people that you have to pay your taxes in order to reduce government debt. Bad look for the party, looks sleazy. And even though Rishi Sunak said that he acted decisively, and I think this is one point where I can agree with him, he acted more than Boris Johnson would have, right? If Boris Johnson was in charge, Rishi, uh, sorry, Nadim Zahawi would still be Chancellor of the Exchequer because Boris Johnson didn't sack anybody over their conduct or the, 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 the level you had to get to to almost be sacked by Boris Johnson was so high it was unthinkable. Like That's the Chris Pincher affair that eventually brought him down was him kind of saying, oh, we've got to wait for the facts of this case to come out before I act on it. Um, like, no, that's <laughs> should have got rid of that person straight away. So yeah, Rishi Sunak did act faster than Boris Johnson, but it still reminds people that there are these this problem of sleaze that seems sort of inherent in the Conservative Party at the moment. And on the back burner, you've also got Dominic Raab, the Deputy Prime Minister, who is still in position, who is facing increased allegations of bullying from people within his own party as well, and civil servants who have worked for him. Uh, the same kind of allegations that we saw against levelled against Priti Patel, and even when that investigation came out and said that she was guilty of bullying, that was all brushed under the carpet and she didn't lose her job. So I wonder if Rishi Sunak will act on those things, and if he does, yes, he's better than Boris Johnson. However, it still shows that there are quite a few bad apples within the Conservative Party, and that once again undermines his message. He wants to be the one. He wants to be clean. He wants to be a fresh start. That's why you get a new leader in. You want to try and brush away the foes of your, the faults of your predecessor and say, no, these are the things they got wrong. I'm going to do it right um, if these two more ministers going down with cases of sleaze shows that there is an inherent problem in the Conservative Party, that whoever is in charge, whoever they put underneath them, there's always going to be problems. That, again, is a big problem for Rishi Sunak in the 2024 general election. Yeah, yeah. I mean, more more of the same, really. Problems, problems, problems. And I I feel like we just gonna, I'm going to keep referencing the 90s here because it does seem very similar. Um, it's not, it's not uh, you know, Times have changed. It's not uh, uh, Tory sex scandals uh, where it turns out half of the t t uh, Tory party were gay and keeping it hidden. Um, but it is, you know, it's it's another sleaze thing. Um, it, it's it's. I, I'm very glad that we've moved on as a society and no longer think that that is considered sleaze and 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 and, and in the same way now, and that uh, we're a more tolerant society at least in that on that point. But. Um, yeah, it's, it is just, it does feel like we're just drawing parallel after parallel here. Um, one last point, I think on things, uh, that Rishi hasn't really focused on. Um, well, I mean, I, I guess he technically did focus on his cabinet reshuffle. He had to put the thought in, um, and you know, we, we kind of knew it would be coming. Um, but, uh, what, what kind of issues has that thrown up? Because there's always that bit where suddenly someone gets thrust into the limelight and we'll go, they dodgy. 
Um, in the Conservative Party, the answer is probably yes. But uh, uh, in what way are they dodgy? So, um, yes, uh, what's going on with that cabinet reshuffle? Yeah, so he did sort of a mini cabinet reshuffle, which was forced by Nadim Zahawi having to step away. So he needed to employ somebody as the new head of the Conservative Party. Um, that meant a few people changed roles. The most significant was that Lee Anderson became deputy party chairman. Now, if you don't know who Lee Anderson is, he's somebody who sort of has appeared on the fringes of conservative politics. He's quite like, he's one of those red wall MPs. He's straight talking. He most His most famous policy or most infamous policy, I guess, is that he straight up has said in an interview two weeks before he was appointed as deputy party chairman, yep, I believe in the death penalty. And for people who definitely did the crime, they should definitely have the death penalty because if they're dead, they don't do no more crimes, which is a point that you can raise, but in our society seems quite backward. And there is definitely a sort of branch of conservatives, a more caring conservatives, ca- compassionate conservatives. You're thinking about sort of David Cameron's hugger hoodie type conservatives. They would be appalled by that idea and feel that it would be a vote loser. And so Rishi Sunak, by appointing somebody like Lee Anderson, is clearly trying to pull back some of those Boris voters, trying to get some of those Reform Party voters back to the Conservative Party, saying, hey, we've got one of your people in our party. That's why you can vote for us, because we're the party of this guy. However, that also works against you, because it reminds those compassionate Conservatives that you're giving those type of people ministerial power. And in particular, I've heard um, that there are rumblings, particularly within the Lib Dems, who are targeting key Lib Dem conservative marginals, saying, yeah, we will we'll talk about Lee Anderson on people's doorsteps, saying, hey, is this this conservative said, you know, these things about the death penalties? Is that this type of conservative you want to be? We're not like that at all. Why don't you give the Lib Dems a try and, and send a message to them that you don't want these people in their party? It will be not only a vote winner, but a vote loser for him. And I think it shows once again that he has that he has to have this uneasy coalition of people within his party. And his talent pool is drained now. Who has he got to pull from? Like I I'm not saying Nadine Doris was a talent within the within the Boris Johnson administration, but she was she held a ministerial position for many years. She's resigned. She's saying that she's not going to stand next election. Um, the former health secretary, Matt Hancock, has said he's not standing in the next election. Lots of conservatives have had a look at the state of the party, don't think they're going to win in 2024, and have taken it as their opportunity to stand down. And that's going to cause more problems for Rishi Sunak. He has a diminished talent pool, nothing that he can really plan for the long run. And again, it kind of gives this impression that he is trying to keep the ship chugging on to 2024, um, but with not much light at the end of that tunnel yeah and uh I, I think that's a key point you've just touched on there at the end where it was talking about people resigning and it is a lot of people resigning and people from all wings of the party and they're gonna have to you know i'm sure that there are enough conservatives that they can put up someone for every seat it's not like they have to be worried about that but you know unless there are some real up-and-comers that we haven't heard about and i think as you say at this point we're kind of at the bottom of the barrel uh, is how it feels with this. You know, there are, there isn't anyone who we've heard of who were like, oh, they'd make a really good leader and would really help things out. Um, so, yeah, I think it's uh, uh, it's the the slow heat death of the Conservative Party, as I think we may have called it in a previous episode or or something similar. Um, so, yeah, it's the you, 
I very much struggle to see how they could win a 2024 general election. Let's put it that way. Um, uh, Going to have to pull some magic hats uh, or magic money trees out of hats. Um, yeah, <laughs> something like that. Because yeah, it doesn't seem that doesn't seem like they're uh, they're in a good position anymore. Um, uh, which you know that that's how things go in politics. That's what you would expect. Is that we should be at this point due something other than the Conservatives again, um, having been there for thirteen years at this point. Like it's not surprising, but it's yeah more trouble for Rishi Sunak. Uh, so with that, uh, with that kind of uh, dreary outlook for the Conservative Party and Rishi Sunak's uh, tenure as PM, do we wish to go into our general election predictor and the uh, polls? Yeah, and I think it's really interesting to focus on the polls because people did focus it on them after 100 days. Um, most leaders, you would expect them to have some sort of bounce in the polls. It's the first 100 days. It's full of optimism. People are willing to give um, the new leader a chance. And to be frank, he couldn't do much worse than Liz Truss. So I'm really interested to see what the polls look like to see how much of a bounce there has been. So uh, first things first, I mean, you said the bounce. Uh, I love I love how many of these posts I now get on Twitter through our Twitter account. Uh, at Unpal Podcast, in case you're wondering. Um, but you uh, elect Politics UK posts like out polls with the raw numbers, which is quite fun to follow. Um, because nearly every time there's a comment, it's like, oh, look at that Sunak bounce whenever there's like plus 1% to the Conservative, uh, which is very funny. Um, yeah, let's have a look at our general election predictor first, because that's the one that uses, it's only updated once a month. So it was last updated at the end of January. So their current prediction is a Labour majority of 250, which let me let you know is a big number. Um, the predicted seats there would be 450 for Labour, which would be a, more than double what they currently have. Uh, and the predicted seats for the Conservatives are 112, which is, uh, as I'm sure you can understand, a lot lower than they have now. Um, Liberal Democrats would get a small increase. SNP would be about the same, which isn't surprising. Um, everyone else basically staying where they are. Uh, the probability of possible outcomes, Labour majority, 96%. Labour minority, 4%, which basically means, yeah, it's it, it, it's not looking good for the Conservatives, uh, as as I think you'll agree. That's uh, only calculated once a month. So let's go over to the polls proper. So our rolling average of the polls, uh, currently a 12% lead for Labour on 48%, uh, which isn't the highest they've been. Uh, just before Sunak came in with Liz Truss, they did hit a high of 52% on an average of the polls. Uh, but still, 48%. They've basically, there has been a slight bump Sunak because Liz Truss was absolutely tanking things for the Conservatives. But since that kind of settled down, hasn't really changed that much. Labour still significantly in the lead. Conservatives on 26%. Uh, Lib Dems have dropped a little to 9%. And then Greens reform, SNP, etc. are all in their usual slots below that. So yeah, I mean, anything you want to say about that, Rob? Or is that pretty much the picture you expected? That's the picture I've expected. It's interesting to see. You can see like a very direct comparison between all three leaders there. Like Boris at his very lowest was probably about 31% when the scandals all came out and he had to resign in around about July of last year. So Labour were keeping about a 10% lead, but that's enough where Conservatives feel that they could peg it back or maybe an election, they can get some momentum behind them and, you know, oh, a couple of scandals in the Labour Party, maybe we can fudge a, fudge a victory out of this. Then you get to Liz Truss and you see it dip all the way, like you say, down to 22% for the Conservatives and 52 to Labour. Then Rishi Sunak comes in and he's got them chugging on at, 27 26 percent so he's been able to recover about four to five percent of people who 
didn't like Liz Truss but are accepting of Rishi Sunak, but he's still four points behind where Boris Johnson was. So that's that's where we're at. That's the popularity of each leader. He is right in the middle when it comes to uh, popularity amongst the general public. And that's a big problem for the Conservative Party. If you're not as popular as Boris Johnson was after everything that he did and how he was forced out, that's clearly an an issue for you and you've got a mountain to climb. Labour fairly steady at 48%, which is kind of what I expect. They haven't got it's harder to go higher than 50%. You reach a ceiling eventually. Um, and we've already pointed out that there's kind of a, a trouble for Labour, maybe getting people to cross the aisle from Conservative to Labour to get their vote. Um, where we might see that happening a lot is up in that uh, red wall. People who voted Conservative, who voted for Boris Johnson, thought they were getting one thing, got precisely the opposite and said, well, I might as well go back to Labour. They're promising these things. There was the values that I held and, and Boris Johnson let me down. So, yeah, very interesting. Um, not nervy for Labour at the moment. That's why I think you look at the polls and that's the reason why Labour are so confident. And that's the reason the, the Tories are struggling to get a grip on some of the, the key issues. They're just simply not. When you're polling at 25%, that means three quarters of the country are pretty much against you, doesn't it? Which is a bad place to be when you're in power exactly and yeah i mean we, we've touched on it up to this point in this episode i get the feeling it's not gonna be good for the conservatives but there's always a chance labor will absolutely stuff it up so <laughs> yes let's not count yeah. our chickens yet um but yes i, I get the impression <laughs> that's where things are going um is there anything else you want to add uh, I, I don't have much to add that seems like a reasonable analysis of the polls yeah yeah no that's that's it thank you very much yeah, no problem. Okay, so thank you everyone for listening. Uh, as always, if you want to follow us anywhere, you can go find us on uh, patreon.com forward slash TTSS where uh, you'll get notified every time there's an episode. And there's also those Patreon bonus episodes we mentioned uh, starting from a mere dollar a month. Uh, you can throw any amount of money our way if you like, but a dollar a month is all you need to get access to those. Uh, and then you can go find us on Facebook uh, at unparliamentary, as Unparliamentary Language. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Podcast. You can find us on Reddit at forward slash r forward slash unparliamentary. Uh, and of course, there's nothing left for me to say other than it's good night from me. And it's good night from him. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Good evening and welcome to the bar. Join Dr. Wilco as he investigates the histories of your favourite spirits and your favourite cocktails while mixing you a drink at the bar. The other bars may be closed, but a podcast bar will always remain open.